welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. What I want to do in my comments from the scripture today out of Acts 4 as we come into the word for a portion of time and then we'll finish with worship is I do want to talk about the kind of church that we and indeed every church needs to be in this time of gospel opposition. Uh, There's a, a tremendous need to be driven into the presence of God and to become praying churches. You know, it's popular in our culture to kind of give um, positioning statements to everything. And, you know, I've I've had a background in the ministry, but also out in the advertising world for a period of years and positioning statements and universal selling propositions and taglines and everything else are popular in our culture because we think we can organize everything. Uh, but you know what? The gospel is, is not that way. But over the years, I mean, there have been one of the most popular is, is fill-in-the-blank, the fill-in-the-blank driven church. And so, you know, in, in our culture, we, we've, the most famous idea was the purpose-driven church in the mid-'80s uh, when I was starting ministry and, and involved in churches. And there were different responses to that idea um, there, uh, there was a book written a number of years later called The Gospel-Driven Church because people feel that was being uh, diminished in, in, in the where the church was going. And then there was the bi- a book called The Bible-Driven Church that was brought out to, to drive people back to the, the revealed truth of the Word and all that's absolutely essential. And, and uh, whatever, however you fill in that blank, I, I would submit to you that there's another way in which the church needs to be driven that's really been underlooked. <laughs> Underlooked, And that was what I would call the presence-driven church. Driven by the opposition of the gospel into the very presence of God where the church discovers deeper power. And so I'd like to add my phrase to the mix. Purpose-driven, gospel-driven, Bible-driven, fill-in-the-blank-driven, while presence-driven churches are going to become what we want to focus on in this darkening generation. And so my comments out of Acts 4 are going to focus for are going to focus on how God began to build the very first presence-driven church. He did it through persecution. He did it through opposition. And so uh, the the whole experience of the presence-driven church came about in Acts chapter 4. In that chapter, God began to teach his church to come into his presence through persecution, and they found power. I just want to mention, this is not going to be the deeper exposition that I usually do of a text, uh, but I'm just going to move through this passage and bring out four observations quickly about the presence-driven church. Why am I doing this? Again, because not only are we going to face it more in our society, as was mentioned earlier, but all the churches that we support, you heard Jeff say it, 
We've, we've seen eight churches start through our financial partnership with them. They're in a region of the world there, where there is in opposition to the gospel. That's why there are more Western missionaries there. That opposition is only going to increase. And so we need to pray for the churches that we're influencing overseas to become driven into his presence because there they will find the power to serve him and to survive and grow. So the kind of churches we want to develop will be presence-driven churches, and the kind of church we want to become, it should be a presence-driven church. There's my context of introduction. Before I go into the four observations here of what a presence-driven church began to look like in the book of Acts, let me recap what had happened in Acts chapter 4. Can't read for time's sake the first 22 verses. Sure wish I could. Great story. It's a story in which the church tastes organized persecution for the first time. After Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit fell upon the crowds in the temple colonnade in Jerusalem, and over 3,000 were saved in one afternoon and baptized into the church, the church flourished. You know that in Acts chapter 2, and many were added to the number. In Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Peter and John had gone to the temple, not only to worship according to the law in the, in, in the Jewish culture, but also to take opportunity to, to speak about Jesus, the Messiah. As they entered the temple, there is a, uh, pardon me, in Acts chapter 3, this happened. Uh, they entered into the temple. There was a lame beggar, lame from birth at the temple. God so ordained that they would heal him uh, through the power of Jesus at that time. Great crowds arrive and flood the portico again. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches again like he did in chapter 2, and many more come into the family of God. And so thousands are coming into the church in that great experience. As they're preaching to the people and thousands have decided to trust Jesus as Messiah, the Jewish authorities surround Peter and John. They are opposed. They are uh, told to stop preaching. They're arrested, kept overnight, and then they're brought into trial before the Sanhedrin, the same group of people that had condemned the Lord Jesus just a few months before. There's a hearing that takes place. And they are told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They answer that in chapter 4 and verse 19 with a famous phrase, Whatever, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they said we're going to continue to preach the gospel, not expecting that kind of boldness, these secular authorities backed off, warned them that if they preached the, with the gospel again, they would be punished, and then they were set free. That sets up chapter 4, verse 23 that I read earlier in your hearing. Now, Peter and John go back. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends, the church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. What did they say? They said, we preached, God worked, but things are changing. They've threatened us not to preach again in the name of Jesus. They've ordered us not to preach, and they threatened us with jailing and persecution if we do preach. By the way, they also told them the miracle stories, as many have already knew. What did that church do? When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. What happened? They responded to the threat of persecution by moving as a body of church into prayer. 
That's the point of the passage. That's the great part of the narrative. They, they immediately decided to go into God's presence when trouble came. They became a presence-driven church. I see four things in, their, in this text, at least four. I've only got time for four today, and that's, that's fleeting. Let me sh- shoot through them real quickly for you. First of all, I see that the presence-driven church prays as God's gathered people. Look at verse 23 and 24. They came back. They went to their friends. The church gathered somewhere near the temple or somewhere nearby. They gathered as many believers together as they could. Reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, who's the they there? All, hundreds or maybe more, that were gathered, heard it. They lifted their voices. And what's the next word? In your, in, together to God. I notice it's a little thing, but they went immediately to prayer and they prayed together. It's just interesting to me, a couple things there. Uh, The persecution was beginning to roll. Soon it would get a lot worse. There'd be another great issue in Acts chapter 5, and finally in Acts chapter 7, some years later, but still not that uh, far away, was the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. You remember that. So it was starting to escalate. They knew it was coming. They did not do anything operational, organizational, or oppositional to the authorities at that point. They simply went to God. But I think they discovered something, and that was that as the world turns against you, that's when you start turning to God. You know, I think that I've discovered over the years that we don't need God until the world is done needing us. (laughs) And the Lord's going to use all that's going to come, beloved, to draw this church and the churches that we want to plant and we want to support into his very presence. They're going to become spirit-driven, pardon me, presence-driven churches. But the other thing I want to point out is that they approached God together. That's what I use the word gathered there. They lifted their voices together. They stayed together as God's people, and they learned to pray together as God's people. It's interesting. There's just as much corporate prayer of believers together in the New Testament as there is solo prayer or individual prayer by individual believers. In our culture, what's, what do we do? We all pray by ourselves. All prayer life is individual. All prayer life is isolated in your own world. We rarely gather together and pray together. But these guys prayed together almost as much as they prayed alone. So gathered prayer is a very important part. They understood it in a deep way. They did lots of it. We understand it in a very light way. We do little of it. But as darkness grows, we're going to learn to pray in a more gathered way. We've already started to do this with some of the prayer gatherings that we're doing with more regularity here. But I hope we learn to do it a lot more because it's the way the church encourages itself and leans on God. So the presence-driven church prays as God's, God's gathered people. They pray and they pray together. That's what the Lord's going to be teaching us in these years ahead. And I pray he teaches it to the churches we influence around the world. Here's the second. I see that the presence-driven church prays as God's shepherded people. Where do I get that? We'll take a look at verse 24 and following. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together, all gathered in that, that room. I have no idea where it was or how many could cram in there. 
But Acts chapter 4 was a big group gathered prayer meeting. I'm I'm imagining hundreds gathered in some building. And here's how they prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. they, They begin their prayer with worship. They begin their prayer with revealed truth about God. They begin with praise. They begin praising him for who he is. They don't begin with the problem. They begin with praise. Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What are they saying? Oh God, you promised all this would happen. And you're sovereign over history. You said back in the Old Testament that the Gentiles, the unbelievers, would rage against the gospel, rage against the truth, and in fact, their hatred of of your saving work would grow so high that the kings of the earth and the rulers would gather together against your anointed one, against your Messiah when he comes. Who was that? The Lord Jesus. Some months before they had gathered against him, tried him unjustly, tormented him, crucified him. They said, Lord, none of this really surprises us. You're a sovereign God over history, and you predicted all this in advance. So they went to their scriptures and worshiped him out of the truth of the scriptures. What what I'm telling you is they knew that God was their shepherd, that God was in control of all of this. They didn't let it take them by surprise. They knew he was sovereign in it all, and they knew he had his purposes Truly, you allowed it even to happen in this city, verse 27. They named names, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the peoples of Israel. That's referring to the guys that had just put their two guys on trial the night before. They, they played it all out and said, Lord, you've been in control of it all. But look at verse 28. They can only do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The worst crime in human history was the crucifixion of the wonderful, perfect son of God. Many people would say it's the worst tragedy in human history. Oh, they're wrong. It was the most sovereignly planned event in world history. It was the pinnacle of what God wanted to do to save people. And God was in control of every moment of betrayal, every drop of blood, every fall of the hammer, and every ray of light on Easter Sunday morning. He was in control of it all. And all they did was, as the latest challenge came, they took it to the presence of the Lord, to what they knew about God, and they said, God, they're persecuting us, but we're reminding ourselves that we're a shepherded people. We are not alone. And in fact, they can't do anything that hasn't already been sovereignly planned by you. And you have a perfect purpose in it. That's what a presence-driven church discovers. And I think we're going to discover it in our culture pretty quickly. And it's okay. It's all right. Because whatever darkness approaches us will drive us into the presence of the glorious light of our God. I'll take that trade off any day. And the people that we support around the world already know it more than we do. Those in gospel-threatened countries, those that are, that are under great persecution, or those that are under gathering persecution, they understand it. 
You know what the greatest power in persecution is? A knowledge of the sovereignty of God. The greatest reaction to persecution is surrender to that God for whatever he wants. It's interesting. Sovereign Lord in verse 24 is an interesting word that we as Christians don't want to own much. Despota. That's where, when we get our word despot from, a, a supreme total authority. We look at despots as dictators around the world. Here they're saying, God, you're our dictator. You're our sovereign authority. Whatever you want to allow, we'll accept. We're not giving you terms. Because we know your plans are perfect, and you're going to take care of us. I just love that. So in the days to come, this church and the churches we support around the world may feel outnumbered. But you know what? As a Christian, you can never be outnumbered. This may sound prosaic, but uh, you're, you're accompanied by an army of one. <laughs> it's just him. And they knew that quickly. Here's the last two. I see that in my brief observations here, thirdly, that the presence-driven church is one that prays for God's protection. They didn't just say, well, Lord, we know you have a plan. And we'll suffer through it. Look at verse 29. This is, so, pardon me, yes, verse 29. And now, Lord, they, they, they began their, their, their prayer with worship. Don't miss that. All powerful prayer starts with worship. It doesn't start with the situation. It starts with the sovereign. It doesn't start with the details we want to get solved. It starts with the greatness of who he already is. It doesn't start with our demands. It, it, it begins with our, our worship. We, they re-encountered who he was. They declared he was sovereign over everything that was happening or could happen. And they said, now, now, Lord, that we know you're in total control and we trust you for everything, now empower us to obey you. And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats. I just love that. The government closing in, the, the powers that be shaking the chains. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Oh, my goodness. Lord, we know what their threats are. We know what their thinking is. We know what uh, all that they're threatening is. You handle that however you want to handle it. Our job is to continue to be a voice for the gospel. Let us be empowered to do that and protect us in that. I, I just tell you, this is awesome. They could have taken an entirely other direction, couldn't they, as human beings? Fearful, moving away, didn't do it. I just find here a couple things. These folks went from fearful to fearless. Isn't that interesting? They were filled with the Spirit, empowered by prayer. You said, which, ha which happened first? I said, yes. <laughs> they came into the presence of God, reminded themselves of who God was. They put the, the situation in the hands of this sovereign God they worship, and then they said, strengthen us to do whatever you want us to do. And that's it. And God came through. Now, you've got to remember that some of the leaders of that meeting, Peter, and the other apostles standing in front of them were the same guys that only months before on the evening of Gethsemane when the same leaders sent the same authorities to the Garden of Gethsemane, what did those guys do? Did they stand or did they? They ran. 
They ran like the cowardly lion diving through that glass window in the hallway, didn't they? Same guys. Now they're leading a whole group of people saying, Lord, you take care of their threats. You just let us be the voice that we need to be. How did that happen? By faith, because of his presence. Have you ever become that person? Well, let me give you a clue. You never finish becoming that person. People think certain individuals are just fearless. It's in their DNA, their personality DNA, or they have this massive gift of faith in their character. None of that is true from my experience. You become and stay fearless all the time. In other words, you have to constantly become that person over and over again. Threats come, difficulties come, challenges to your faith come. Are you a fearless person all the time? No, you have to go get that. You have to become that person repeatedly in different challenges to your faith, and God's good for it. He will meet you. He will strengthen you in the hour, and you'll become that person again. Sometimes you'll fall out, and you won't be that person. You'll give in to emotions or situations and all that. Well, that's what the grace of the cross is for. Take it there. There was a stripe on his back for that one, too. Acknowledge it to the Lord. Get back out in your walk of obedience and stand for the next one. That's what they were doing. They were protected. But for whatever the Lord allowed, they said, you are our despot, Lord. If you want us to perish, we'll perish. We just want to rejoice in that by faith. You handle their threats, verse 29. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The presence-driven church will be pressed in the days ahead through the persecution of our society to become more of those people. The design's already here. The churches we support around the world, the design's already there for them too. I close with the last. The presence-driven church, just in my brief observations here, is also a church that prays for God's power. Pray for God's protection, verse 29. Help us continue to speak. And finally, they pray, I got a little ahead of myself, with boldness. God, don't just let us endure. Let us step out. Don't let us survive alone. Give us the power in the moment when your truth is at stake, when your gospel is at stake, when the truth of the cross to save people is at stake. Give us the strength to still speak, to be bold. And again, um, it's a very difficult and uncomfortable place to pee. I don't know if you know this, but you can be persecuted and powerful at the same time. You can be someone who, under the word of God, is really in battle, but ultimately is still stand. I love 1 Peter 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Notice, you can be suffering, but armed and standing at the same time. You can be persecuted and powerful at the same time. That's why I said it's something you, re- you, you revisit and you re-strengthen for time after time after time. And he's good for it. I'm sure that this was not the last time they had an Acts 4 type prayer meeting. I'm sure, because you go throughout the book of Acts and they, you, you keep finding them doing it. How did Peter get out of jail in Acts, I think it's Acts 12, the church prayed him out of jail. 
Literally, remember the story? The angel kicking him in the side, say, Peter, get with it. I'm a stand, miracle standing here. Let's go with the program. We're, I'm taking you out of jail. And Peter goes to the place where the church was praying. In fact, they were so shocked that he was at the door, they were still praying for him to get released. You know, I mean, just quiet. I just love that time motion thing with God. They did it over and over again, and God was good for it over and over again. When the church was persecuted, they learned to look not for a way out, but for a way into God's presence for power. And they let him work out the details and the consequences. It was mentioned about persecution around the world. I had the privilege some years ago. I don't, haven't had, been out of the country much as a pastor, but I was able to be in Western Africa. The Nigerian pastors that Jeff mentioned on the video, I met them, prayed with them, grieved with them over the deaths in their homes and stood in the floor of churches where the blood had run through machete attacks and, and uh, was there with all these pastors as they told their stories. And then I went back on Christian radio where I was a talk show host and I shared their stories and raised all kinds of funds for the church in Nigeria. But when I was there, I saw the spirit-given boldness and courage in the lives of the men and women on the ground there. Why? What made them different from me? They were simply part of a presence-driven church that had learned to pray for God's power. And so will we be. But part of that comes when you realize he is, as verse 24 says, your sovereign Lord. Not your preferred Lord. Not your occasional Lord. Not your Lord when permission is given to him to be Lord in certain dimensions of your life. But your sovereign Lord. Your despotes in the Greek. But when God becomes your despot, listen to this, he also becomes responsible for you. He'll take care of you. And he becomes your greatest treasure. Everything you ever really needed or wanted becomes something you discover in him. And when that happens, there is progressively less for the world to take away from you through persecution. I think, again, the churches we support through the people I listed are under that growing darkness, and we are going to become part of that growing darkness, living under it. But God's got this. And one of the things we'll learn is that the less I hold on to in this culture, the more I will find sufficiency in him and the less they can take away. There's an old story there. I close with it finally. Um, of Chrysostom, who was one of the greatest preachers in the early church. His name meant golden-tongued, I think, or silver-tongued. Great believer, great preacher, great Bible teacher. There's the very early years of the church. He was summoned because of his preaching and leadership before the Roman emperor, an emperor named Arcadius, and the emperor threatened him with banishment, which to a leader was a big deal. He thought of, I'll take you away from your people, take you away from your churches, take you away from your family, take you away from, from notoriety, take you away from communication. Our, and uh, the emperor said, if you do not cease to preach Jesus, you will be banished. And Chrysostom said, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. In other words, God's with me wherever you send me. <laughs> so 
I'm an army of one. I'm with an army of one, rather. Well, then the emperor said, then I will slay you, becoming more angry. Chrysostom said, no, you can't slay me, for you cannot do that, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. (laughs) I have another life you can't touch. That's where my real life is. So you can't slay me. Then the emperor got angry, and he says, well, then all your treasures, everything you own will be confiscated. Chrysostom answered in the courtroom, Sire, that cannot be because my treasures are in heaven where no one can break through and steal them. (laughs) Well, then I will drive you from men and you will have no friends. Chrysostom answered, that you cannot do either, for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's the way the courtroom drama went. Everything that that the emperor thought he owned in that man's life had already been given up, and he'd found a greater treasure. So he was able to stand because he'd discovered the presence. Ultimately, he was banished to the Caucasus on the edge of Armenia today. But when he got there, all he did was start writing letters. And the letters of how he was suffering and finding God's presence to be sufficient encouraged the church even more, so they banished him farther away. And on the way, the Lord took him home to heaven. But I just love that. Whatever you want to take from me, I'm sorry. I have something better already. What they were discovering as things were threatened to be taken away was the something better already. It's really a someone, isn't it? The presence-driven church discovered all of that. May the churches that we've heard about today that we support have that grace. May our church... As darkness comes, have that grace.